actually going to start this morning with the image. New Year's resolutions. Do you struggle with them? Don't do them. <laughs> New Year's resolutions are actually an attempt to alter our priorities by means of an external discipline. That's what it's all about. I'm going to force myself to do this. I'm going to do it as a New Year's resolution. I'm going to get it written down here. But does it work? December 14th, an article appeared in a publication called Parade.com. And it was titled, Let's Kick Off the New Year Right. Here are 55 New Year's resolution ideas for 2023. The interesting thing about the article was that it was subtitled, These Goals for the New Year are Attainable and Fun. <laughs> it was written by Megan Grant. And here are the top three of those 55. First, focus on a passion, not the way you look. She points out how influencer Mick Zazon, who's on a mission to, quote, normalize normal bodies, tells Parade that she wants to inform readers that resolutions are, in fact, not an invitation to start a diet or a workout plan, but a beautiful reminder that a new year can bring new life. Okay? Focus on a passion. Not the way you look. She moves to number two. Work to at work out to feel good, not to be thinner. Instead of obsessing over the scale, she says obsess over how amazing you feel since you started being more active. Numbers don't mean much. And I can tell you that far beyond Anything that I gained in terms of weight loss was how much better I felt and how less often I had to go home and lay down for a power nap after lunch before I lost the weight. Number three, and I found this one interesting. Stop gossiping. Don't be that person. Spread positivity. And you know what hurts? What hurts is when I find out that people actually spread gossip in the name of prayer. Yeah. Hey. We need to be praying for so-and-so. And instead of stopping right there, and instead of having a different tone, we need to be praying for so-and-so because blah, 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 blah. And all they were doing was using prayer to spread gossip. God knows. You don't have to go into gory details when you ask God or ask somebody else to ask God to remember somebody in prayer. 
And there's 50, 52 more doable resolutions just like those if you're interested. But if you're like me, I'm not a resolution person. I do believe that it's very important to pause at significant points in your life to reflect on where you've been and where you want to head. Where would you like to be next year at this time? Not just geographically, but emotionally, spiritually, financially. What about five years from now? And the beginning of a new year is an excellent time to do so. Anybody keep a diary? If you do, is it just a chronological narrative? Or does it actually include some personal evaluations from time to time? The story is told by an English pastor named Jeff Thomas of a wonderful, devoted deacon in his church named Rex Pocock. He says that in October of 2002, at the age of 90, <coughs> Brother Pocock went home to be with the Lord. Listen to the words of eulogy spoken by Jeff at the funeral service. Rex had a little diary. And after walking with the Lord for almost 70 years, he wrote these humble words about himself. More like a devil than a saint. And Pastor Jeff wondered, because of the text that he was using for his eulogy, he wondered how often Paul felt that same way. And I wonder, how often should that phrase appear in my diary if I kept one? How often should there be a notation in my diary that I am thinking and acting more like a devil than a saint? That I am more defined by the culture in which I live than I am by the Word of God? Now we've been slowly working our way through Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. Uh, this is the 19th week, and we finally made it to chapter 7. I mean, I, I guess you realize we're not even halfway there. It's got 16 chapters. In the first six chapters that we've already looked at, Paul made the rock-solid case that all of us are guilty of sin. And we all deserve the righteous wrath of God. If chapter 1 didn't sound like a description of our society today, I don't know what else could be added. <coughs> Excuse me. As a parent, we used to worry about what our children might see on TV. Now, you have to be con concerned also about what they might read in school or might have read to them. You see, what is common or pushed as a part of an agenda today was vulgar and obscene not that many years ago. And listen to the, again to what we read in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 as he closed that chapter. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
all have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I said, wow. That's a, a pretty bleak picture. <coughs> and he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Or you could skip down to verses 22 to 23 of chapter 3. And you find, once again, Paul painting a rather dark, pessimistic view of mankind. For there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Excuse me. Remember what I said when we went through that passage? All have sinned, past tense, continuous, but all fall short of the glory of God. On the road since six caucusum. <coughs> She's gonna go get me some water. On the road since six o'clock this morning. I, I fall short of the glory of God when I drive. <laughs> it's not amazing to me that there are so many people killed on the highways every day. It's amazing to me that it's not a lot more. Because some people just aren't very smart in the way they drive. And this one person just pulled right out in front of us, went across slowly, went across and turned off on the other side. And there was nothing behind us. And I fell short of the glory of God. You see, when we really pause to examine ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we don't deserve what God has done for us. Even as dark and bleak as that picture is. Aren't you glad that Paul also explained the forgiveness, eternal life and freedom that we can have through Christ Jesus? You see, the question that Paul has placed before us is simply this. Are you willing to be a slave? There are a lot of people that they see that, oh, they get repulsed by that idea. But Paul has pointed out very clearly in the first six chapters, we are slaves. The question is, is what are we slaves to? And that's why this focus on addictions is so important to me. Because I see people every day who are in bondage, who are living in fear, who are in bondage to their jobs or what other people might think, who are in bondage to things that they've done that they haven't been able to forgive themselves for, and put out of their active memories. 
We're slaves. It's just a question of what we are slaves to. And so, in Romans 6, he draws out the importance and the logic of our baptism. He draws out the importance and the logic of our conversion. And in both cases, his argument begins with the same astonished question. Don't you know? Verse 3 and verse 16. And he continues by probing our understanding of our own Christian beginnings. Since through baptism we were united to Christ and as a consequence are dead to sin and alive to God, how can we possibly choose to intentionally do that which is wrong and sinful? Diane, I know you shared how you were reading through the whole Bible this past year and you actually got done ahead of time. So did we. We got finished earlier in the week. Did it strike you back when you were reading through Leviticus and I mean trudging through and trotting through? (laughs) Did it strike you that there is no mention of forgiveness for intentional sin? If somebody sins unintentionally, if somebody sins unaware, if you know something's wrong and you choose to do it anyway, that's what Jesus called putting God to the test. Paul's basic question to his readers is this. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? I mean, self-surrender leads inevitably to slavery. Whether we become slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. This person that I was sharing with you about, I, I don't know. I only know about him and his wife. <clears throat> But his addiction to alcohol nearly cost him his life the night before last. Sin leads to death. And the problem is that the death doesn't come soon enough. And so people don't associate death with sin like they should. If I had been, and I shared this with you before, if I had been either Adam or the couple in Acts that lied with regard to the property, and in that case the wife, If I'd have been either one of those, and in the first one, if when Eve took a bite of the apple that was going to lead to death, if she'd have dropped dead, you think Adam would have taken a bite? No, I don't care for any apple today, or whatever the fruit was. And if in Acts, if that woman would have known that her husband dropped dead immediately like he did, 
But she didn't know it. You think she would have lied to Peter too? Nah, -uh. not me, Peter. We didn't sell it for that amount. We kept some of it, you know. But here's the problem. The punishment doesn't follow the crime closely enough. And that's the problem we're facing in our society today as well. You get locked up on a crime, you're lucky if you can get that in a courtroom within a year to a year and a half. If it's a felony, a major crime, two to three years is not uncommon. And all that time you're sitting there thinking, <laughs> I think I got away with this one. And then even, unfortunately, when it goes to court, the hand gets slapped. I mean, really. Do you really think that presidents were given the ability to pardon people of crimes so that they could pardon somebody that murdered somebody? Like happened this week? So, are we willing to be permanently and unconditionally at Jesus' disposal? That's where our text is taking us for today. And Paul closes chapter 6 with, you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But remember, when Paul was writing, he didn't stop and say, chapter 7, verse 1. Those weren't there. He keeps writing. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, She'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written law. So let's go back to the question. A question that we need to understand. Since Paul will use law, commandment, or written code so often in these verses. What is our relationship to the law? 
How should we understand it in terms of our attempts to be true disciples? And there's only three possibilities. The first two of which Paul rejects. The third he commends. We might call them legalism, antinomianism, and law of abiding freedom. Legalists. That's my struggle. That's what I grew up in. I have, I had a grandmother, my dad's mom, who was convinced that if you didn't sit on the veranda on Sunday afternoon and watch cars drive by, cars of sinners who were driving by, because they shouldn't have been out going anywhere unless it was an emergency, but unless you didn't do anything more than, if you didn't do, do just that and not anything more, you were violating the Sabbath, which she somehow believed was Sunday, and it's not. That was there in the background. Legalists are under the law. They're in bondage to it. They imagine that somehow their relationship to God depends on their obedience to the law and they're seeking to be both justified and sanctified by their obedience to the law. And the focus is totally on their own works and their own abilities. The opposite extreme that I call antinomians, anti Namas is law, those against the law, libertines. They go to the opposite extreme. Blaming the law for their problems, they reject it altogether and claim to be rid of all obligation to its demands. They turned liberty into license. We remember it, I think. When they said that the reason people aren't really expressing who they really are and feeling free is they've allowed all of those don't do this, don't do that. And when I was a late teenager and early adult, it was in regard to sexual freedom. Allow yourself to be free, free love, free relationships. And so we have some of the highest divorce records known in the existence of the United States among people of my generation and those just a little older than me. But law-abiding, law-fulfilling, free people, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, they preserve the balance. They rejoice both in their freedom from the law for justification and sanctification and in their freedom to fulfill it. They delight in the law as a revelation of God's will. But they recognize that the power to fulfill the law is not in the law itself, but only in the Spirit. So legalists fear the law and are in bondage to it. Antinomians hate the law and repudiate it. But law-abiding free people love the law. And they seek to fulfill it. I knew that my cruise control was set on 74. Normally it's set on 78, but I backed it off for since the cow went in. I knew my cruise was set on 74. 
So when I looked up and saw a state police officer sitting in the median on the expressway, I didn't do anything. I just kept rolling on through. Because I knew he wouldn't be upset with 74, wasn't going to waste his time pulling out in that. But all these other people around me, brake lights. Can I confess for a second? When I was a police officer, you know which cars I pulled over when I was running radar? The ones whose nose dipped and the rear of their car turned red from them slamming on their brakes. Because I knew I wouldn't have to argue with them. If they brake that hard because they saw me, they knew they were guilty and saw I had his right to ticket, here's your ticket, let's go on with it. I've seen people, though, just tighten up in fear when I would be behind them. And, and I wanted to pull around and open my passenger window and say, it's okay, lighten up, just obey the law. You don't have to worry about me. And so, when we come to chapter 7, in order to understand what he's trying to get at, we need to understand that he begins the paragraph, what we have as chapter 7, by addressing his readers affectionately as family members and asking them for a third time, do you not know? And having questioned their understanding both of the meaning of baptism in chapter 3, verse 6, and the implications of slavery, chapter 6, verse 16. I said 3, 6, I meant chapter 6, verse 3. He now asks them, do they really know what their relationship is to the law? And there's no question that the dominant theme of this first paragraph concerns being released from the law. Because what he wants us to know is that we have been released from the law by our death. So when did we die? Go back and read chapter 6. Verses 1 to 14. Don't you know that when you were baptized, you died with Christ? You see, if you didn't allow your formal sinful self to die when you got baptized, <clears throat> we need to get back to the baptistry. Because all of the symbolism of baptism is burying the old self and not what rising to walk with a more powerful me it's rising to walk as a new, different person. And let me tell you how seriously the first century Christians took this. They actually had a, prom a problem in the first century church with people becoming Christians that were starting to neglect their family. And they had to be confronted. Well, what about your family? Well, I'm a new person. I'm not that old person anymore. I'm sorry, you're still married to that person. They took so seriously that the fact that they became a new person that they were just neglecting civil responsibilities that they had, debts that they owed. Well, I'm not that person anymore. I don't, I don't know that anymore. This is a new me. 
They went too far. But we don't go far enough. We don't go far enough. We allow a lot of who Chauncey was before Chauncey got baptized to continue to be Chauncey after baptism. And Chauncey is supposed to be dead. It's no longer me that lives, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. And see, he's speaking to Christians. So, his first reminder is that we've been released from the jurisdiction of the law by our death. It's no longer binding. And, if you notice, there are a lot of parallels here in chapter 7 with chapter 6. We died to sin, 6-2, so we died to the law, 7-4. We died to sin by union with Christ's death, 6-3, so we died to the law through the body of Christ, 7-4. We've been justified and freed from sin, 6, 17, and 18. So we've been released from the law, 7, 6. I mean, the parallels are just obvious. So the only thing I can say is, to those who don't think baptism is that important, you better go back and read Romans 6 and Romans 7. Because it's essential to Paul's argument about how we are to be living as Christians after we've been baptized. But here's part of the problem. We've been deceived. We've been deceived. We think that somehow if we obey all those rules and regulations, laws, commandments, and everything else, we'll be saved. Now, that's not deceptive. If you obey all of the rules and regulations, laws and the commandments, you will be saved. But the problem is, is none of us can do that. And that's what Paul says. You see, Galatians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul quotes Leviticus 18 and says, But the law does not rest on faith, for he who does them, speaking of the rules, shall live by them. But, Paul goes on to point out that the law can't give life. It doesn't have the ability. It doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the strength. We can't do it with our own strength. And that's why he says, sin, finding the opportunity in the law, killed me. That's how Satan uses the law to deceive us. Think of it this way. Critically ill patient goes to the hospital, the doctor. Right thing to do. Thing that Rich and I probably wouldn't do until Jesse or Cindy twisted our arms. <laughs> go to the doctor. Go to the hospital. Get examined. Doctor gives them a prescription. Okay? Are they better? Are we going to be better just because the doctor saw us and gave us a prescription and told us what's wrong? No. 
That's what the law does. It's good. It tells us what we should be doing. It gives us a prescription for how we should live. But unless we do it, we're on the road to death. Twenty years ago, I shared with a couple, very honestly, very on top of the table, the way you two are living right now, seven years from now, you won't be together. You'll hate each other. Oh, no, no, no. It didn't even make it seven. Five years from that point, they got divorced and hated each other. <coughs> because the fundamental tension is between the perception of the good made available by the revelation and the lack of ability to do it because of the self-aggrandizing power of sin. And so it is that Paul continues in the final section, verses 14 to 25, and I'm sorry I'm going beyond. We still struggle with it. We still struggle with it, don't we? I know in my head that what Jesus did for me saved me from my sins. And that if I make a mistake, all I have to do is ask for forgiveness. But sometimes my feelings just beat me to death. So, here's my challenge for you as we start a new year. It's a challenge to... Go back, look again at how Paul is bringing this all to a conclusion. And you'll quickly see what John Stott referred to as the two cries from the heart. The first, verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Somebody else didn't come in and write verse 25. You understand that, don't you? Paul wrote verse 24, and he wrote verse 25 that says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the former is not so much a heart-rending cry from the depths of despair as it is a cry of longing, which ends in a question mark. But the latter is a cry of confidence and thanksgiving, which ends in an exclamation mark. Now, I assume Paul's reference is to a believer like you and I, a believer who laments his or own, her own struggles, someone who yearns for the final deliverance of the resurrection, somebody who knows the inability of the law and who exalts in God through Christ as the only Savior. Although, have you noticed that so far in seven chapters of Romans, we've heard very little about the Holy Spirit? So these two cries come out almost simultaneously. So here's my question. What is your predominant cry? One of wretchedness or one of thanksgiving 
for what God has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today, starting out this new year, desiring to do what is right, to live in a right way. Help us to be students of your word through the coming year. Help us to understand the reality of our situation, that we are sinners, that we aren't worthy. But also help us to see the promise and the beauty that you have provided a way for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to commit to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment today is going to be...